reading to the book of Job and uh, chapter 38 on page 611 in the church Bible, page 611. Now, it's not that long, really, since we looked at the book of Job in some detail. You'll remember that he was a man who had everything in his favor, really, until suddenly that changed, losing his family and his wealth and finally his health. And he accepts all that at the beginning in humble faith, but as his trial is prolonged, his questions come thick and fast. And um, friends come to comfort him, and they only make the situation worse. And many questions are raised about God's justice in the whole matter. And finally, at the end of the book, God himself intervenes in the debate, and he just asks a series of questions that are impossible for anyone to answer. We'll just read a specimen of them from the beginning of this chapter. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea in with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, and when I said this far you may come but no further, and here your proud waves must stop, and so on, the questions come incessantly, questions that are impossible to answer. At last, in chapter 40, after all these questions, we read that, moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God or he who dares to rebuke God, let him answer it. Now you see the effect of these questions on Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. But God's not finished. In verse 6, he answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. 
I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then he moves on to ask another series of questions. And if you move on down, last of all, to chapter 42, and the final effect that this interrogation has upon Job. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. May the Lord bless these readings again from his own word. Let's turn back to the psalm we sang last, Psalm 77. Now, with a view to the help of God, let's um, turn to the psalm that we sang near the beginning of the service, Psalm 131. You'll find it on page 714 in the Church Bible. Psalm 131. It's a short psalm. We can just read it again. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely, I have calmed and quietened my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So at the end of verse 2, just rephrasing it, my soul within me is like a weaned child. My soul within me is like a wind child. Now, I remember preaching from this psalm several years ago. In fact, it's seven or eight years ago. And I distinctly remember feeling very dissatisfied after I had preached from it. Now, it's quite possible that I might feel the same way today as well, but with the late cancellation of the baptism, I felt that the Lord laid this particular message on my heart. And I hope this morning to revisit it and perhaps say some things that were left unsaid last time. And for that, we do need the blessing and the help of God. And I'm glad to revisit it because the lesson that this psalm teaches is a very important lesson, one that we need to know as we go on in the Christian life for our comfort and for our well-being. Although sadly, it's a lesson that we are slow to learn, 
and slow to apply. So, with God's help, let's look at it. Now, there's no doubt that at the heart of the psalm is the wind child. And the thought in connection with the wind child is repeated, just to emphasize it. In a short time, the psalmist says that, like a wind child with his mother, my soul within me is like a wind child. Now, of course, I'm sure most or all of us really know what a wind child is, but to appreciate the psalm properly, we need to be sure and need to be clear in our minds in connection with what a wind child is. And it's helpful to see a child, I think, in three stages of development. And the first is a stage of contentment. And the source of the child's contentment is obviously his own mother. And the contentment comes from the ease with which the child gets both nourishment and comfort from his mother. And his mother's breast, of course, represents both these. There's comfort for the child, but there is nourishment for the child too. So undoubtedly, the child on his mother's breast is a picture of calm and rest and nourishment. The second stage in the child's development is a stage of complaint and discontent. And the reason for that seems, in a way, to lie in the mother too, because she withdraws her breast as the means of the child's nourishment. Now, of course, when she does that, she doesn't mean any harm to the child. Far from it. The opposite's the case. She means to do him good. She means to nourish him with more substantial food, which is suitable for the child's growth. But of course, the child doesn't appreciate that. The child misses the comfort, particularly of the mother's breast, and therefore the child blames the mother and thinks that the mother is being unkind to him. I think it's useful when it comes to talking like that to remember that children were weaned at a much later stage in that culture than they are now in ours. It wasn't unusual to see a child on its mother's breast at the age of two, perhaps even three. So there is a resentment on the part of the child when the mother removes her breast. The third stage is a return to the stage of contentment. The reason for that, again, lies in the child's awareness of who his mother is. He is aware that her motive is still love and kindness and care. And his mother still provides comfort for him and nourishment, but just in another way. So the child now is happy, not on the mother's breast, but just beside his mother, like a weaned child with his mother or even by his mother's side. Now, we need to import all that 
into the psalm here just to understand the kind of spiritual experience that, that David is actually describing in his walk with God. Some kind of contentment, some kind of discontent, and a return to contentment. And of course, all that occurs in a psalm that is written by David. Now, that doesn't mean that it's necessary to find all these experiences in David's life, but I think it does mean that it's useful. Sometimes the authorship like this is a little hint just to go into the history and to see whether in the history we can find situations that pretty much illustrate what the psalm is speaking about. So I hope just in looking at it that we'll just confine ourselves to the full and varied life and spiritual experiences of David, the man after God's own heart. Let's first of all begin with his own state of contentment. And very often, Christian life generally begins with a state of contentment. How can't it? When we come to know the Lord, we are in the flush of that knowledge and the wonder of his love and amazement and appreciation of his pity and of his tender mercy. And he does deal very tenderly with his people at the beginning. He said to Israel um, in Deuteronomy, after they had gone through the wilderness, he said, when I took you out of Egypt, I bore you on eagles' wings. I made you to soar, and I made you to soar up high. You felt, as we would say today, that you were flying. And what's more, God said, I took you on a particular route. In the early days of your experience, he says, I, I didn't take you the quickest way to Egypt, because it, sorry, to the promised land, because that would have involved an encounter with the Philistines. But I did not want you to see war in case you would lose heart and turn back. Now, is, is that not kind and considerate? Yes, war would come. It was on the agenda. It was down the road, but it wasn't early on the road because God is very sensitive to the souls of his people. And as I've often said, he grades our trials, and these trials are light at the beginning. Now, having said that, I think it's worth saying that there are, I think, exceptions to that rule. There's pretty much exceptions to every rule. But these exceptions are quite rare. And I think that history will show that very often those who have been almost immersed into conflict right from the beginning have a particular calling to fulfill or a particular role to play, perhaps, in the purpose of God in their lives. But be that as it may, the rule is that God bears us on eagles' wings. And I'm sure those of us who know the Lord today can serve, can say that, and we can say it wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, at the time, maybe it doesn't necessarily feel like that. I suppose it's easy for me to say that now in retrospect, having been 40 years on the journey myself. I suppose sometimes at the beginning it didn't feel too difficult, but it didn't feel too easy sometimes, but looking back, yes, I was born 
on wings like eagles. And the Lord led me carefully as he led you, lest we would be discouraged. Um, I should say, too, that I don't mean when I say that, that you had no trials and no difficulties. Of course you did, but not of the harder kind. And for David, that was true. His days at home as the youngest of the family, looking after the sheep with his father, were what could be called the halcyon days in his own pilgrimage too. There's no doubt that he had his difficulties, and he records them. How he had to fight off a lion and to fight off a bear, and these were no small tasks uh, for a young man to accomplish. And he was very conscious that it was the help of God that made him accomplish these tasks. But Oh, I'm not belittling what it means to face a lion and a bear, but they were by no means the hardest tasks that David was to have in his life, although they seemed hard at the time. But God was with him. And uh, in many ways, his life would, would have seemed richly blessed and easy and pleasant as, as God was nurturing and nourishing him, save in his father's house. And uh, that kind of ease in our Christian life or that kind of flying in our Christian life finds its counterpart in the sanctuary when we come to meet God, whether it's the private sanctuary of your home, perhaps your bedroom, or the public sanctuary of this house and the church. Either way, God sees that it's easy for you to find the breast. It's not difficult. God sees to it that when you call on him in prayer, he answers you. There's a sense of communion and fellowship, and the answers to your prayer come perhaps quickly and easily. And the same is true in connection with the word of God. Every time you open it, it has something to say. And it seems as though you don't have to search that hard to dig it up, it comes out at you. It's like the manna just falling around you and you scoop it up and it's there. And that's true both in your private sanctuary and in the church. Every sermon is relevant. Every reading comes to you and you're clearly being carried along by God himself. But now for David and for us, there's a second stage. And this stage is marked out by complaint and discontent. Now, let me say right away, that it doesn't need to be so. I'm characterizing this second stage by our response to it, really, rather than by the thing itself. But this second stage of God's dealings with us is often characterized by our response, which is discontent and complaint. And the reason for that is because God is weaning us. Now, what is weaning? By that I mean, what is spiritual winning and why does it happen? Well, I suppose the reason for it is fairly obvious, and that's that God desires our growth. New birth is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to be newborn into the kingdom of God, but who wants to be a perpetual baby? And does God want ourselves to be perpetual babies? I'm sure there are such things as perpetual babies in the Christian lives, life, but they ought not to be so. The Lord desires our growth. And the way that he brings about our growth is simply by deepening our experience, or if you like, widening 
our experience, but better to think of it deepening. And as he deepens our experience, we discover more about ourselves and we discover more about God too. Let's again go back to David's life. I suppose you could say the culmination of the first part of it was when he was anointed by Samuel, identified as king to be, done in secret, of course, because if Saul had discovered it, that would have been a price to pay. And a short while after that, he was introduced into the royal household of Saul as a musician. And when he played, um, Saul wasn't as troubled because he was deeply troubled in his mind and in his spirit. And you would imagine there would be a short step between that and David himself finding the way to the throne. In fact, you can imagine David saying, well, mysteriously, God has taken me from keeping my father's sheep into the palace. I I can see a path somehow. It's still not very clear how, but I, I can see that I'm getting to the place where God says that I'm going to be. That's turned around like that. After a brief time of popularity, he becomes effectively an outlaw and a fugitive in Israel. He's a hunted man. He's running for his life. He's on the hills. He's in the valleys, Mitzar Hill, Jordan, Hermon. There's no place where David doesn't have to go in flight for his life as an outlaw. That's not what David expected. Of course, in panic later on, he goes into the territory of the Philistines for their protection. Bad move, of course. But he has the town of Siklag, which is given to him, and the 600 men who have gathered around him who are themselves effectively, for one reason or another, outlaws. This town becomes theirs. There's a sense of settlement, at least for a time. But on one occasion, when David and his men were doing business and returned, Siklag was burned with fire, and their wives and their children had disappeared. And in all the agony, the 600 men who were so loyal to him are now wanting to stone him. It's far easier to encounter a lion and a bear. Later on, when David is an established king, he wants to bring the ark home. And the whole of Israel gather for a national celebration in Jerusalem as the ark of the covenant is being taken to Mount Zion, where a temple will be built for it. In the midst of the celebrations and the praise Uzzah, a good and godly man, sees the oxen stumble, the ark about to fall, stretches out his hand, and God strikes him dead. And David returns home an angry man and a confused man. And all Israel return home equally angry and confused. What kind of God is this that we are dealing with? Later on still, David, of course, has a terrible relationship with Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, a child is conceived, a child is born, David's told that the child's going to die, and David struggles with that. And for a long, long time, he wrestles with God, praying that the child would be spared. Child's not spared. Prayer's not answered. Child's taken away. 
It's easier to meet a lion or a bear. Towards the end of his life, he has a rebellion in his own house. It's not that long since we looked at that. His own son, his own flesh and blood rises against him, commits an outrage with David's concubines, and what's more, he ends up dying, hanging on a tree, hanging famously by his hair on a tree, leaving David with deep questions, not just regarding the evil that was in his family and the evil of his son's death, but his son's eternal destination. To hang there by his hair in which he gloried as a narcissistic man was a sign that he was under the curse and the judgment of God. It's far easier to meet a lion and a bear than to wrestle with all these things. Now, all these experiences are very, very difficult to bear. Like I say, if you pardon the pun, harder than the lion and the bear. And the key to carrying them well is to keep trusting in God. That's what you have to do. I mean, that's how the psalm ends here. It actually uses the word hope. I'll come to that later, why he uses the word hope rather than faith or believing. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Obviously, this idea of hope is very, very important when it comes to calming your soul before God. We need to keep hoping and to keep believing. When you first believed in God, it might have been easy to believe, easy to trust, easy to hope. But as these difficulties come, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to maintain the same view of God's character and God's faithfulness. And that's why you need to keep faith in God's character, i.e., he is good. It's a big thing to say that and to mean that, that God is good and that God does good. You've got to have faith in his character and you've got to have faith in his covenant. In other words, his actual relationship to you as a good God dealing with you. That his purpose towards you, as Jeremiah puts it, is a purpose of good and not a purpose of evil, to give you a hoped-for end, a longed-for and expected end. You've got to keep believing all that. Now, of course, it's possible to let go of all that. It's possible to renounce God. That, of course, famously was what Satan uh, tried to get Job to do. You'll remember that, that the whole purpose of Satan's attack on Job was to get him to renounce God. You'll remember that at one point he even used Job's wife to do it. Uh, when Job was still clinging on to faith in spite of losing everything in his life, he, he lost everything except God, really. His wife said, why are you still clinging to God? Why are you still clinging to God? Renounce God. It, it's translated in some versions as curse God. The idea is to renounce him. Renounce your allegiance. Renounce faith in God and just die. Just, just, just let go. Leave it. He's obviously not with you. But this psalm is calling us 
when difficulties come, not to be cast stone, or even if we are cast stone, and sometimes it's hard not to be cast stone, but even if you are cast stone, not to become discouraged, because discouraged is what leads you to fall away and to renounce God and die. And one of the encouragements for keeping going is the conviction that whatever God is bringing into your life, And these things that I mentioned in connection with David and his family are just about the hardest things that you can encounter in life. I mean, to to watch or to hear of your son hanging on a tree cursed is about as bad as it gets. But one of the things that helps you to endure is a realization that along with these experiences that God is leading you into deeper things in connection with his own word and with his own character. He brings you into passages of the word of God that perhaps were dead to you or untouched before. I remember mentioning uh, some time ago the experience of Henry Cook, who was a, a Presbyterian minister in Ireland many years ago, in Northern Ireland. And... Um, He had the experience of becoming very, very ill and being on what he thought was his deathbed. And he described afterwards the profound change that came upon him on his deathbed because he he discovered the book of Psalms, discovered them. Now, of course, he knew the Psalms. And in fact, he said that he had learned the Psalms when he was a child, really. But of course, he, he had in his church background, he had stopped singing them and so on and maybe not even read them so much. Although the Psalms is primarily a book for singing. Of course, it can't be a book for singing unless it's read, but it's primarily for singing. So if we don't sing it, we somehow miss it. But in any case, he discovered the book. There were passages in the Psalms particularly just sprang to life because of the situation that he was in. He got enlarged views of God and of God's dealings with himself from the Bible just because of the state that he was in. Had he not been led into that experience, he had not been led into the word of God. And he had not had his heart and his mind enlarged with such views of the glory and the majesty of God. So God undoubtedly says to us, look, I, I will take away your former means of nourishments and comforts. In the process of your growth, I will lead you into deeper experiences, which I will use to bring about your growth. And make sure at these times that you use the means that I have given you to sustain you in these, in these times. And these are word and prayer word and prayer. Now, that doesn't change the fact that these times, these new experiences and these trials are very dangerous times. They're times when, as the psalmist would say, you can begin to be resentful against your mother, just like a child who loses the comfort and the nourishment of the breast. And these problems can arise both in your head and in your heart. Look at the opening of the psalm. Lord, my heart 
is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Both of these have to do with, with the state of the heart. Then he moves to his head. Neither do I concern myself with great matters or things too profound for me. Maybe we can reverse these. Let's start with the head. The head can start to go wrong when difficulties and trials comes. You can start to concern yourself with great matters or things that are too profound or too difficult for you. Now, what are these things? Well, I've no doubt that they're primarily the kind of questions that arise in connection with the righteousness and the justice of God, in connection with his dealings with you or your family, or even with other people or the world in general. Although they usually begin with your own situation. You know, sometimes Christians get bogged down in very speculative questions about um, the way God uh, God's relationship with the world and God's relationship with evil and so on. And these things can give you problems and difficulties. Why? Why is God doing that? Why is God hurting me? Or why is God inflicting pain on my family? And it can, of course, widen out. And why is God allowing that war? Or why is God allowing that family? And usually that's the order of events. It's not that you're puzzled about the wider things first. Usually these things begin at home. They begin at home with yourself or with your family. And then Satan says, oh, see these questions that you have about yourself, you know. See, see these problems that you have just now with your family and with the sickness and all that. That's replicated a millionfold. You know, everybody's got these problems. World's a mess. Uh, and, and you believe God's in control. And you tell yourself that, oh, that God's in control and God... In control, the world's a state. The world's chaotic. It's full of pain, full of misery, full of confusion, full of anguish. And still you hold fast to your integrity. You hold fast to your faith. You still believe in a God who's over it all, superintending over everything. Well, yes. The questions, things high, great matters predestination itself. It's interesting that the confession of faith tells us that the truth of predestination and truth is what it is, that God has foreordained everything that comes to pass, everything, high mystery it calls it, which must be preached with great care and with tenderness. That's not how the devil would have you approach it. It's not how the devil would want you to understand it. That God foreordains everything that comes to pass. Where did evil come from? Where did evil come from? How did evil come into a, a good heart like Lucifer's heart, the morning star, the greatest of God's creation? How did evil start that? Why did God allow it? Well, it's quick to move from the origin of evil to the permission of evil. I mean, God had the power to stop it, did he not? Could God not have arrested the proceedings at the beginning? And, oh, move on quickly, hell, hell. Oh, the existence of that is a problem. Especially so if there's unbelief in my family, if there's unbelief in my mother or my father. Especially if my brother died, showing no evidences of grace, or my father died in the same. Before long, you're peering into things too high for you. 
things that you were never meant to peer into, things that are too difficult to understand. And these problems in the head are coupled with problems in the heart. My heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. I should have said here that like, Psalms are written from a point of view. Sometimes you have to get what the point of view is. When, when David says, my heart is not this, and my eyes are not this, and I don't concern myself with great matters, he's talking about the fact that he did. He's a, he's a, this was me. I got myself into a position where I was haughty and lofty or arrogant, and I was concerned with matters too high and things that were too profound to me. But he says, I have calmed and quietened my soul. So he got there. He got to calmness and quietness from this awful place where he was questioning things with an arrogant heart, a heart that was haughty and with eyes that were lofty. That's pride. What's pride but an inflated sense of your own importance? Because these questions are often related. Think about it. These questions that you have about God's righteousness and justice in his dealings with the world, notice how often they're tied up with your idea that you're pretty good yourself. Now, sit back, think about it. Notice how often they're connected with the fact that you think you're pretty good and that you deserve something from God, yes? And your family deserves something from God. God is obligated to you. Is that not right? How often are both these things coupled together, the probings of the head into the righteousness of all this and the arrogance in the heart that, how dare God? deal with me or my family like this. I don't deserve it. I, I deserve better. Now, I know that theologically, you, you'll put your theological hat on and you say, oh, I know that I don't deserve anything. But it's easy to put a theological hat on and it doesn't change anything. The reality is you really think you do. You really think you do. And suddenly, God is being judged by the way he deals with you. As though his primary task in this life was to fulfill your expectations, to conform to them, and to do for you what you want and expect. And it's easy to think like that in a world that's full of that kind of thinking. The sense of entitlement around is pretty staggering, actually. I mean, the I'm not even speaking about Christian things at all here, just the general sense of entitlement that people have. People expect uh, money from certain places. They expect he their health to be looked after. They expect their education to be looked after. Everything. And it's not necessary to work for any of that. I mean, the Apostle Paul said that if a person doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. In other words, if he doesn't work by choice, if he doesn't want to contribute, well, neither should he eat the fruits of that. It's a strange thing if I get myself into a position where I think I can just sit around all day and the government needs to feed me. Because, of course, the government doesn't have any money, does it? It's only got your money. It, it has the taxes that it raises from people. So basically what I say is that I can sit here and other people have to feed me. 
Really? Other people may be moved charitably to feed, and I may be moved charitably to feed you, and you may be moved charitably to feed me, but I don't have any right to that. But it's the sense of entitlement. I have a right to a job, a right to education, a right to health. Uh, who, who gave you that? Who gave you these? Who, who gave you these? Is it not the goodness and the mercy of God that we have any of these things? Do I deserve an education? Do I deserve health? How can I say on the one hand that I deserve the torments of hell forever, and on the other hand to say I deserve health? I'm sorry, the two things are not, they can't coexist. And so this sense of questioning, questioning God's goodness and his righteousness and his justice is almost inevitably connected with a sense of, a false sense of who I am and what I deserve before God and who people are and what they deserve before God and who nations are and what they deserve before God. We've lost it. We've lost a sense of who we really are. God's there to perform. Now, beware of starting to think like that as a Christian. If your idea of becoming a Christian is that God sorts out every mess for you, then you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. If you think that becoming a Christian means that your family is not going to be sick, you're going to be disappointed. If you think becoming a Christian means that your son will never die, you're going to be disappointed. Because these things happen. They happen to Christians as well as to unbelievers. And sometimes they happen more to Christians than they do to unbelievers because God may have a reason for that. And that's the point, you see. The point is not whether you know the reason for that, but that God has a reason for it. I can't think of anybody in the world who suffered what Job did. Sure, there were lots of sinners in Job's day, but none of them went to the, through the utter series of catastrophes that Job had to go through. And of course, it was three fine believers who said to Job, there's something far wrong with your life. Because they had lapsed into that thinking that if you're a Christian, well, everything's going to be fine. Fine in your family, fine in your house, fine in your job, promotion after promotion after promotion. You go up, 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 bigger car, bigger house, prosperity gospel type of thing. It's not just the prosperity gospel that peddle that kind of thing. We, we all lapse into it. And we're shocked when there's sickness, shocked when there's bereavement. Oh, how could this happen? Did God say it wouldn't? And when these thoughts enter and gain the ascendancy, we, we become like a child refusing what God is giving to us. And we begin to have huge difficulty in prayer. And we begin to have huge difficulty in reading the word of God. And instead of dealing with the situation as God wants us to deal with it, we in fact resent the food that God gives. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going into prayer. I'm not going to pray this morning. I'll just leave it because I don't think it makes a difference anyway. And just bit by bit, your temperature cools. And who knows what you are at this point as you're cooling. And then little by little, your church attendance cools. You ease off the prayer meeting. You've got reasons, of course. We always do. 
And then you ease off Sunday, maybe one end of the day. Then you're here a week, then you're absent a week. And you say, well, I, 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 can, I can live Christian life quite fine without all that. You don't like the food, though. And you're kidding yourself, really, because you're not in prayer privately as you were either. This public-private thing is interesting because people die privately before they die publicly. They die privately before they die publicly. You, you're, you're, your own sanctuary in your own house is empty long before your space is empty in this house. No doubt about that. You, you die privately first. And it's a terrible state to be in. It's moving beyond the situation of Psalm 77. There, there the man was lying on his bed, and he had some kind of sore that was running all the time, some desperate situation. He was wanting an answer. God wasn't um, coming with an answer. And uh, he couldn't sleep. And he's eventually reaching the point where he says, well, is, is God, does God care? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he forgotten to be kind? You can move beyond that where you don't even ask the question anymore. It's just like dying inside. You move beyond that and you just die inside. You don't even ask the question. Like the king said, I, I always forget which king this is. It doesn't matter how often I learn it. The king, I think it was Jehoram, who said, well, God hasn't helped. Why should we wait for God any longer? And he turns around and goes away. That's a man who's died inside long before he showed it outside. Now, we're not meant to stay discontent and complaining. You'll notice in verse 2 what the answer is. I have calmed and quietened my soul. The word calm here is like what you would use for the sea after the, after the storm when it's become a flat, even surface. We're told that when the Lord Jesus said, when he rebuked the wind, we're told that there was a, a great calm. In the Greek, a, a mega calm, a mega calm, absolutely flat. And I have quietened, he says, my soul. The idea of quietness means that these raging questions and confusions that are driving him to distraction and to despair, which is what Satan wants to do, remember, to question God to the point of renunciation, these questions he says, are quietened. Quietened right down. I don't ask any of them anymore. How? I have done it, he says. I've done it. Now, he doesn't mean by that that he's done it without God. But it just means that he went about doing it. You see, <clears throat> It's easy to take a, a view of God's sovereignty that just sits back. It's always a danger, especially for people who are Calvinistic in our thinking. It's always a danger. But he says, I have done it. I have quietened, calmed and quietened my soul. How? By remembering the basic things. He simply humbled himself before God. Went back into his private sanctuary and back into his public sanctuary. And he started to pray and to listen to the word of God. Like a child. Like a child. Certain key things you need to remember, me with you. Number one, you aren't God. We're not God. 
God flattened Job with his questions. He, he answered none of Job's questions. He just exploded them. That's what he did. Where were you when I created the world, Job? You're not God. Second, God is not obligated to justify his ways to you every time he does something. Let's, let's understand that. We think today, again, that people are obligated to answer all our questions. God is not obligated to answer me, mine. He's not obligated to justify to me what he does in my life at every turn. He just simply isn't. You need to remember that too. Number three, there are some things you are never going to know in this life. And God has reserved his own right not to tell you. Now, I'm saying these things quite dogmatically. They can be quite painful to learn. But we need to. Moses tells us that the revealed things belong to us and our children, but the secret things belong to God. In the text, it's the other way around. The secret things belong to God. The things which are revealed belong to us and our children. In other words, there are lots in the Bible about what God does, sometimes why he does it, what we can expect in certain situations, how God will deal with us and so on. <clears throat> the way we're to live and to walk, it's all there. It's revealed. It's for me. It's for my children. But the secret things belong to me. Don't bother asking where evil came from. Don't bother asking how Satan became a sinner. Don't bother asking questions about my justice and my righteousness. Just don't bother because I'm the judge and I do the judgment not you. Oh, how difficult it is for sinful, arrogant man to accept that. How difficult for sinful, arrogant man to accept that God is God and that he has a right to keep some information to himself and he expects our allegiance nonetheless. Does my allegiance to my own father depend on understanding everything my father does or did? No, nope, it did not. Do you expect the allegiance of your own son or daughter to depend on their understanding of everything you do in their lives? Nope. You expect that when you say, look, just leave this to me. Uh, I'm looking after this situation. You expect them to say, yes, father, or yes, mother, or yes, dad, or yes, mom, because that's the relationship. And it's the relationship that matters. Not the amount of knowledge that flows back and forth. It's the relationship that matters. Faith which lays hold on the fundamental goodness of the character that my father knows what he's doing. It's a purpose for what he's doing. And again, that takes me to the last thing, that whatever happens, God's purpose to you as a believer is to refine and purify, to grow you and to save you. And nothing changes that. doesn't matter how hard, difficult, or perplexing the situation is. That's God's purpose for you. And, and you've just got to believe that. And David could say, how can the death of my child be for my growth in grace? How is it good in any way? And God says, believe it. Believe it. Trust. Trust me. I'm not just asking you to give assent to it as a dogma but to trust me who did it, that I know what I'm doing. Your God has not changed, and his relationship to you has not changed. What did this say for David? Well, 
quickly. When he was a fugitive, very far from the kingship, he actually went so low at one point as to say, well, one of these days I'm going to fall into the hands of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to go to the land of the Philistines. Big mistake. But he came to reconsider and to trust God. When the town of Siklag was burnt to the ground and the wives and the children were all lost and his 600 followers were ready to stone him, we're told that after crying, David encouraged himself in the Lord. When he took the ark home and the good and godly Uzzah was struck down dead in public there in front of tens of thousands of people who were rejoicing, David was angry, we're told. He called the name of the place a breach upon Uzzah because he felt that God had intervened in a way in which he shouldn't have intervened. God was too hard and God was too harsh. And he went home angry, David. Three months later, he came back chastened and humbled. Because three months of prayer and meditation turns everything around in your head. And you begin to see, well, it wasn't God who was hard. It was me who was at fault, actually. In fact, I was at fault. And very often, that's what we find with a bit of self-examination, that there's a problem with ourselves. And three months later, he came to bring the ark home in a far better spirit. I was angry with God's anger. Now I'm angry at myself. That's a far better place to be. The death of his child. Well, like Eli, all he could say is, it is the Lord, let him do what seems right to him. We don't understand it. It's hugely painful when God does something like that, but it is the Lord, let him do what seems right to him. Absalom, well, We know nothing of David's response to that, except that he just wept bitterly, repeating Absalom's name. All we know is that he found his eventual strength in the secret place and in the house of God. He kept believing and he kept trusting. He kept walking in faith, as did others. Abraham was shocked to hear Sodom was going to be destroyed. He prayed for the place. God assured him if there was 10 righteous people, he would spare it. Abraham stopped praying because he knew the universe was safe in the hands of God. Jonah, of course, was perplexed at God's grace. Couldn't understand that Nineveh could be saved while his own Israel was lounging in apostasy under the judgment of God. Here was his own people forsaken and God's embracing this horrible group of people the Assyrians, and converting Nineveh. Jonah has to come to a place where he prays it through and recognizes that God is God. That's why the psalm ends with Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I said at the beginning that it's interesting that the word used is hope rather than believe. There would be nothing wrong with saying believe, of course. But hope is interesting because hope expects good things. That's the definition of the word hope, really, the expectation of a good thing. Fear is the expectation of a bad thing or the anticipation of a bad thing. Hope is the anticipation of a good thing. And that's what David is saying. Look, he says, I've been there. I've gone through that. 
I've gone through that in my home. I've gone through that in my family. And listen to me, you see. There is no mileage in questioning God in any of these things. However much you feel like it, no mileage. Let me tell you that you just get back to your relationship with God and keep hoping. Keep expecting a good thing because God will exceedingly and abundantly satisfy your desires one day. Just keep hoping. All Israel hope in the Lord. And if, if you are passing through a really dark place today, keep your relationship with God right. That'll be the source of everything coming right. You don't understand it, fair enough. Maybe you're just not meant to. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we pray to remember that you are indeed God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. And help us, O Lord, to put aside our protestations and our confusions, our discontents, our disquiet, and our questionings. O Lord, as you commanded the sea, to be still long ago, and there was a great calm, so command our own hearts to be still also, and just to go forward like a child with our hand in yours, knowing that you know what is for the good and what is best. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, close our worship just by singing that psalm. I don't need to read it again. It's on page 422. Psalm 131. We're singing to the tune Humility. Of course, it's a very fitting name for this tune. I was discussing that in the vestry before, and I'm not sure it was the tune designed to be sung with this. I doubt it, but it's a fitting name for a tune to be sung uh, to this psalm. So we sing to the tune humility, stand to sing. My heart not haughty is, O Lord, mine eyes not lofty be, nor to Thank uh-huh.
O Lord, grant uh, your presence with us as we reassemble this evening and help your servant in preparation to deliver uh, your word to us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.